When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, I'm Daniel and welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. In this episode, we were joined by Sonia Conterra, who is a professor of biological physics at the University of Oxford. And she has a new book out called Nano Comes to Life, How Nanotechnology is Transforming Medicine and the Future of Biology. So she was interviewed by Tom Whipple, who is a science editor at The Times. And it was a fascinating conversation about how nanotechnology has the potential to transform all of our lives. We hope you enjoy listening to the episode. And if you do enjoy listening, please make sure to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to find the show and it lets us know what you think. Hello, I'm Tom Whipple, Science Editor at The Times. Welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. I'm here with Sonia Contera. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So can we begin with a little bit about you? What is it you research in your day job and how is it that you became very interested in very small things? Yes, I um, studied physics in Madrid And when I was studying physics, I I went to a talk. There was a Nobel Prize that had got a Nobel Prize for inventing this cunning tunnel microscope, which was the first microscope that would allow you to see single atoms and move them. So that was actually the beginning of nanotechnology. So the first time humans started to see, have the capacity to see matter at a very small scale. So I decided I could go that way in my life. The decision was taken a bit later. I went to China after doing physics to study linguistics and eventually went to Japan to do a PhD working with these microscopes and the beginning of nanotechnology. So I was interested in Japan because of the uh, revolution, economic revolution they had using technology. And I was interested in how they did it. So I went to an engineering department in Japan that was doing matter at the nanometer scale. And while I was there, it was a great time to be in Japan to do science. I met and I learned about the first experiments using the tools of nanotechnology to learn how biological nanomachines work. So we are made of nanomachines, which are proteins, which are able to do amazing things like rotating or walking. And before nanotech, you couldn't see them. So uh, I learned about the real nanotech, 
which is the nanotech that evolution had made in Earth. And I got fascinated and I decided to use nano to learn biology at the nanoscale. And eventually I ended up merging both. I do biology, I do nanotech, and I am in the physics department at Oxford right now, trying to understand how life was created by the universe. That's the physics of life. And also how can I use uh, the rules that build biological beings to create new materials on the other way around, to use materials to improve, for example, medical conditions. So we're going to talk about all of this. I think before we begin, it's a good idea to give people an idea of how small small is. What is a nanometer and how does it compare to things that we might understand? So our eyes see down if you have very good eyes you can see down to one micron which is with a micro sorry less a hundred microns with a mic with a normal optical microscope you can see down to a micron or so which is the size of a little bacteria three orders of magnitude down from there is so the that's nanosco- a thousand that's right that's um a nanometer so basically a nanometer is to a meter the same thing as a cup like a cup of tea cup would be to the size of the diameter of the Earth. So that's, that's what it means, a nanometer. So this, that's why it took a long time in, in the history of science to be able to see it. So the normal microscopes were invented in the 17th century, and it took until the 20th century to be actually able to access that size. And that's why we started doing nanotech. And as I understand it, you're talking about things that are smaller or comparable to the wavelength of light itself. So yeah, well, well, light can be very, very small, the wavelength, right? So you can see x-rays can actually diffract in single atoms. Visible wavelength <laughs> is, is, is the key to be using a normal microscope is indeed bigger than a nanometer. And that's why a normal microscope cannot see a protein. You need this scanning probe microscopes that I work with or these days, you can also use electron microscopes. So tell me a bit about these and how we... So, so you say the microscope tells, takes us down to uh, bacteria and then we've got things that are a lot smaller than that. How is it that we've started to be able to see these and interact with these? I told you before, in the 1980s, so basically Gerbinich and Rohr in Switzerland invented the scanning tunnel microscope, the scanning probe microscopes that don't use light to see matter. Basically, they use the interaction of a very sharp tip with the things you're trying to see or visualize or interact with. So it's a kind of a nano finger. You're using like touch at the nanometer scale. So you create a big device around it, which is about measuring the forces at the nanometer scale. And this is possible because you can use like uh, levers that they can a bend when they feel the forces and then you can tap on surfaces and actually see the atoms on those surfaces which is quite a miracle so that's why I went into this field I thought it was wonderful so I use those microscopes and then everything about these microscopes is that allow you to interact for example with a single DNA molecule or a single protein in water warm water so in the actual environment where biology happens so most of other techniques that you can see the small things are happening in vacuum, so they are dead. And the whole thing of using these microscopes is that you can see them moving. You can see how life happens out of movement, actually. Life emerges on Earth at the nanoscale precisely because these molecules that are so small are able to use the temperature of the water, the movement of the water, 
to create function, to create movement. We emerge from movement, and these microscopes allow you to see that movement, to see how little molecules at the nanoscale are able to extract energy from the environment, for example, for becoming more complex, which is what we are, or for performing very complicated tasks. So something very beautiful about the emergence of life on Earth and life in general is that by the universe creating molecules able to become more complex, able to survive with time, it created function and also created the capacity to store information in the shape of the molecule is information about how to keep moving, how to keep going around. So that means it entangles the universe around you into you, into your structure. And that structure is actually information. And as these structures became more and more complex, that information became intelligence. So I think the beautiful thing of studying biology at the nanoscale from the point of view of physics is that you entangle all you know about the universe, the rules of the universe, with how life emerged and how we interact with the world. So we go back, and this is something I discuss in the book, allows you not only to fabricate new materials or understand better our diseases, but also allows you to have a more profound understanding of life and even perhaps uh, reconnect with old ideas about life that humans had thousands of years ago. So allows you a kind of convergence, which is what I tell in the book, of all the sciences, so physics, mathematics, engineering, are trying to understand life, computer science. And in doing that, we're also converging with very old ideas of humans about the meaning of life, about the origin of life. So this is a very exciting time to do all this research. So if I was a um, biologist reading your book, I could imagine I might be getting increasingly cross and feeling a bit threatened. Um, There's an element of it where it's a bit like physics is putting its tanks on the lawn of biology. Could you talk a bit about that? You're talking about a physical approach to biology as opposed to a biological approach. Um, The idea of that, I guess, that forces and mechanics are important and understanding what happens when atoms come into touch with each other beyond just chemistry and biological hand-waving? Can you explain this to me? Yes. So actually the reason why most of biology separated from physics in the 20th century and 19th century is because we didn't have the tools to investigate biology from the point of view of physics. We couldn't see molecules living in, in water. We couldn't understand their energy or we didn't have the tools. But... There's also political reasons for that. So biology starts, if you want, with the development of the first microscopes. We start seeing how plants, actually Robert Hooke starts to see how plants are made of cells. And then we try to get inside the cells. And we got inside the cells uh, in the 1950s, but with very indirect methods. So proteins will be extracted and DNA will be extracted from the cell. And it will be studied mainly the structures with X-ray diffraction, which you make is a technique that allows you to see the structures, but of dead molecules, static dead molecules that made in crystals. So together, at the same time as this biochemistry started to be able to understand and to be able to investigate the chemistry of life. And at the same time, genetics started to become important. So in the 1950s, a body of information started to be created that involved protein structures, structures, but of things outside the living environment. 
the chemistry of life and at the same time the discovery of DNA. So the discovery of DNA was good and bad because while we all know that biology is incredibly complicated and that's one of the reasons why physicists didn't go into it because it was too complicated to actually make mathematics with it or trying to understand it. The biologists and the physicists, because indeed Rick and all these people working in DNA were physicists, decided that that was great. We found DNA. We found the molecule of life. All we need to know about life is written there. We don't have to bother about the rest. So we just have DNA. The, the DNA turns into RNA. The RNA turns into protein. And if we know how to read the DNA, we don't need to learn anything else about life. So this was also very useful for many political agendas that seek to just reduce people to genes. And it was very convenient, for example, within the if you want, colonialist uh, mind frame, which is you go to other places and you find people which relatively less technology than you, that must be because they have worse genes. So it allows you to create a hierarchical structure as well of society, what is being called the social Darwinism. So biology got entangled with politics very early on. And that has shaped a lot the way biology has happened. The culmination of this was the Human Genome Project, we was trying to find all the genes we have. So if we know all the genes, that's it. We will find a gene for every protein. We will know the origin of every disease. Fix the gene, fix the disease. But what happened? So in our body, we have 100, around 150,000 more types of protein. I think, can we briefly explain? Because people will be familiar with the word protein. We know yeah. we eat protein. But can you explain what yeah. protein actually is? Proteins are the building blocks of our bodies. So collagen, basically, we are built of cells that secrete proteins and the cells themselves are built with proteins. So they're nano-sized uh, building blocks that build our body. They have, there are 157,000 different proteins in our body and they are responsible for all our sensing. The proteins in our eyes are able to, pr to sense the light. Proteins in your fingers are able to sense touch. Proteins in your gut will know if you're eating a poison or not. The proteins in your tongue distinguish salty from bitter. So they're life nanomachines, they're sensors, and also they're structural. They build all our structures and they move, produce our movements. So we are built up from building blocks at the nanoscale. And then they turn in, they also construct the cells and the cells construct more building materials with proteins which end up in our shapes. That's why we are obsessed with proteins. And most many diseases happen when your proteins malfunction. So one of the main paradigms of biology has been to identify the proteins that malfunction so you can target them with a drug. This paradigm is not working. And uh, that's one of the reasons uh, why it's very difficult to develop new drugs. It's very difficult to find these proteins. And when you find the drug, they don't bind to the protein. And even if they bind to the protein, the cells can get rid of the drug eventually. And then you become resistant like your tumors to your drugs. And the reason for this paradigm is this uh, arises from, from this genetic paradigm. So the idea was that for each protein in your body, there will be a gene. And these genes would just be activated whenever the body thought they had to be activated. So when something malfunctioned in your body, you just target the gene and you will get rid of the problem. That was the original idea. And that would work if you had a protein for each gene and it was some kind of linear algorithm. The problem was, and this was found with the, uh, with the Human Genome Project, that even though we have 157 or something like this of this order proteins, we only have 20,000 genes. That Cross the biologists, but actually opened a wonderful, wonderful possibility, which was that the DNA inside our cells, which is two meters, 
we have two meters of DNA inside confined in five micronucleus, would work as a wonderful computer. So basically, the cell will be sensing all the information of the wall around it at the nanoscale with proteins. That information, immense amount of information, will be transmitted to the DNA. And the DNA shape, where I was telling you at the beginning, that in biological shape is embedded our capacity of intelligence. The DNA shape will be feeling all this information, rearranging and act as a computer, combining the genes to produce the protein. That's why when you have a tumor and you throw a drug, you kill initially a few cells because you're killing some of the proteins. But after a while, the surviving cells start computing solutions and say, oh, let's get rid of this protein because it's killing us and produces another protein. And then your tumor becomes resistant. So that's why it's important to study biology from a physics, computing, mathematical point of view. And now it's time for a quick break. So this is obviously a very different idea, I guess, of what biology is, that you need to see exactly what's going on with these different shaped atoms, what they're doing, how they're mechanistically sensing the world. You talk about a lovely example in your book of an experiment in 2006 that proved this rather rather wonderfully. Can you talk us through that? Yes. So I heard, I suppose the listeners may have heard of stem cells. We come from a ball of stem cells when we are embryos. And these are the cells that can turn into anything. This is the another of the wonderfulness of biology. You start from a ball of cells that they all look the same and you end up with bodies with cells of, that are able to do many different things. Muscle cells, heart cells, brain cells. So for the most part, biologists have been trying to, when you you would turn, the process where you turn a stem cell into a cell of your eyes or of your heart is called differentiation. So uh, biologists have been trying to send chemical signals to cells to produce differentiation. And of course, they become good. That's why Yamanaka and Gordon got a Nobel Prize a couple of years ago, a few years ago, because we're getting better at this stem cell differentiation and differentiation. So it's always been assumed that cells only feel chemistry because that's how biologists are trained. They don't train in maths or physics. They're training chemistry. But there was a this experiment you talk about there was this guy, Dennis Disher, who got these stem cells, got stem cells of the same type and put some of the stem cells in, in, a, in a Petri dish or in a little material that was as hard as bone. A few more of these cells were put in something as soft or middle soft as muscle. And a few more were put on a plate that was more or less as soft as brain and that let them survive there. So when he came back and measured, he found that the cells that were sitting on something as hard as bone, they were turning into a bone cell. And the cells that were sitting on something as soft as brain, they were turning into a brain cell. What this tells you is that when a cell arrives somewhere, it attaches to it, pulls from it, the DNA feels the mechanics about it, and it starts producing protein. So that cell turns into the mechanical environment there is. So there's program mechanical identities of the cell within the structure, which are not just chemical, they're mechanical. One of the most beautiful things we are returning to know now in biology or is that in biology, which is something that was known in the 1950s, in the 1970s, in Russia, actually, they, they investigated this a lot, that every biological structure couples chemistry, mechanics and electricity at the same time. So you cannot move from one to the other. And actually, that's the origin of life. When you are, and that's why life happens at the nanoscale. So you can steer what, how a uh, cell behaves just by the mechanical environment, which is inspiring people to create new 
treatments for cancer. So there's some wonderful experiments where it's shown that you could revert a tumor with an electric field or within a mechanical environment. So you're talking to the cell in another language, not just the chemical language, but the mechanical language or the electrical language of the cell. It's a very different way of looking at our bodies, um, this idea that we've got these cells that are tugging and pulling on things to see how soft or hard they are. Uh, one of and yet that's how we work ourselves <laughs> in a, a macroscopic world. We move around mechanically, not chemically. Well, that's the thing. It's, um, <laughs> th- that's, that's the thing that struck me. It's actually, in, in, in a lot of senses, it feels easier to understand than you know, abstract chemistry about ionic bonding or all of these things. But then you start thinking about this and think, well, is biology not just a high-level heuristic for chemistry, which is itself a higher-level heuristic for things bumping into each other at a, at a nanoscale for physics? I mean, is, is, is that not what we're saying, that really physics is the root of all of these interactions? Well, We've just created physics, these. the thing with physics is that it was, you know, the division of science is, is, is artificial. Is is basically it has to do with the with the capacity of states to educate people in three, four, five years into a profession. So you become an expert in maths, or you become an expert in chemistry. But nature doesn't do this. There's only one nature, and that the the thing of physics is that physics is all is is deals with that, deals with the rules of the universe, how they manifest everywhere. And the magic of physics that is the oldest of the science, and this is something that it was discovered in the 16th century with Galileo and Newton, is like humans have the capacity of looking at the world, somehow modeling it inside ourselves and come out expressing it in mathematical language. This is physics is a weird human capacity to understand the world and trying to produce a language that describes it and even predicts it. So it comes from the idea that the world can be understood. So in that sense, of physics has always been related with biology. And this is something biologists don't learn. Biologists learn about correlations. This correlates with that. If you eat that, you will have cancer. But they don't deal with causation. So it's a profound philosophical difference. But the reason why physicists are interested in everything is because, I mean, life is at the core of physics. How do we understand? If we look at the main physics theories that have transformed the way we understand in the world, sort of quantum mechanics and relativity, Einstein started thinking about relativity, thinking about how do we learn about the world? How can we believe our perceptions? And by thinking about how we perceive he managed to extract the theory of relativity and eventually prove it. In a way, this is what we're trying to, this is what we're trying to investigate now. We, we have bodies with proteins, with beautiful structures that understand the world at the nanoscale and then transmit it to our brain and our whole body is able to interpret the universe. How this is a physicist's job. <laughs> so one of the, I, I want to before we move on to what we can do with this, I want to give listeners an idea of just how weird this is. And the the, the thing that really struck me is the myosin. Tell me about the myosins and what these yeah. are doing inside. Me. I love showing this because you can go to YouTube and see. I think wonderful movies that everybody should watch, and because they are transformative. So. I was really lucky in the early 2000s to be able to work with a group in Kanazawa University in Japan that were developing these microscopes that were very fast and they were able to 
visualize for the first time ever the movements of molecules in water. And they focus, I focus on another protein, but they focus on a wonderful nanomachine, which we have in our bodies, in all our bodies, in all eukaryotic bodies, even in plants. Every movement in your cells, every movement in your body is eventually linked to one of these proteins, myosins. So these myosins, they have the shape, it's like two legs put together. And they walk. They perform walks. If you if you look myosin high speed AFM online and you log, go and see the videos on YouTube, you will see an amazing thing. So it's a little molecule with two legs that stick to a nanometer track. The track is the acting filaments that we have inside the cell. So the cells are full of roads and cables at the nanoscale. So this thing sits on that and uses the movement of water and a little bit of chemical energy to move forward. It walks it walks a step. I mean, it's literally Literally walking. steps yeah. forward. And this is the way evolution has found uh, a little nanomachine that moves cargo around, that pulls from thing around by walking. And the reason these machines work at the nanoscale, and we go back at the origin of like this, when, when you're so small, when you're nanoscale, the water molecules around you, they hit you. They produce, they help you to move. It's a little like the windmill. So the windmill design is built so that when the wind passes through, it moves forward. So these things, the mechanical design is such that when the water hits them, propels them walking forward. So they use something like electrostatics to fit, to stick the feet onto the track. And then they use the, wa- the water, like the windmill, to move forward and produce deterministic movement in one direction. This is why life happen at the nanoscale. And at the same time, that movement is able to catalyze chemical reactions in some case, because when you're at the nanoscale, you bind the molecule. And it's not an abstract thing. When you're so small, the molecule binds to you. And because you're shaking, you're always moving because you're so small, the water moves you. It allows you to bend the chemical bond and you push the electron out. So basically, when you're at nanoscale, you can grab a molecule, twist it, and produce a chemical reaction. That's why we're not just chemistry. We're a chemistry directed by the environment where we are in. That's why you can entangle your structure with the environment and with a chemical signal. It's much more beautiful than just chemistry. So we're now, I guess, in the last 20 years trying to uh, be engineers at the nanoscale ourselves and... Now, now we realise that there are these little robots that are doing little robotic things inside us, trying to do similar. And there are a few lovely examples. There seems to be a whole uh, branch of nanophysics which is looking at DNA origami, which is yeah. wonderful. Talk, talk to me about this, making yeah, this structures is, out of DNA. This is rather wonderful. So in the 19... everything, All these ideas happened in the 1980s. So the microscopes, the first nanomaterials. And there was a guy in the US, Nadrian Simon, who was trying to become a DNA scientist and he was not being very successful. He was trying to make crystals. And he had this idea that because DNA is made of four blocks and the blocks stick to each other in very specific places, he could perhaps use these blocks not just to encode information in it like DNA or, or to create a structures that are like helixes of DNA, but he could use them as building blocks for something else. So he started creating synthetic DNAs and and design. The first time people started to actually design things with computers in in this scale, building blocks of things things that would self-assemble into shapes. So he started to create it 
tiles, cubes, all sorts smiley of... Faces. Uh, smile faces. No, the smileys came later. So he demonstrated that you could use DNA as a building material. Forget about biology. This is a wonderful building material, the nanoscale, that allows you to produce shapes with with incredible design capacity. We didn't know, and still we don't really know what to do with this, which is one of the problems of nanotech. Um, yeah, and then came this guy, I think it was early 2000, in Caltech, who realized that he could do it even faster. So he got a big ring of DNA that he extracted from a virus. So it's not designed DNA, it's just this big ring. And then he decide, he, he read the sequence of the DNA there. So he learned what was this, the building blocks using all the techniques that biochemists had used before. And he then designed these staples that the staples would buy in a specific places of the DNA and then just throw the staples, shake it a bit. That means heat it up a bit. And then you can create not only smiley faces, any shape you want. He demonstrated that you could use a computer to create any shape you want out of DNA and staples. And then actually one of my ex-students when I was living in Denmark, Ebes Loth Andersen, managed to do this in 3D. So he managed to build a box, a 3D box out of DNA origami that actually opens and closes, which he's trying to use for drug delivery. So using these boxes to arrive to cells with tumors and then deliver the drug there, which is rather great. It still has not succeeded in creating a drug doing this. So there's a lot of, there's a, it's becoming a big thing. These days you can, there's companies you can buy the DNA online, you can order the DNA bits you want and their computer programs you can download it's all free because scientists we love working for free yeah and uh, you can build anything you like the problem mainly of this uh, so some people are using this for clever things like making synthesizing drugs that are not accessible through other means the problem of all this uh, nanotechnology we're doing is that it's very difficult to create big things and and access them and um, so we become very good at building anything we like at the nanoscale with DNA now is People are trying hard to do useful things with this, such as electronic devices or assemblers or whatever. Yeah. Well, let, let's let's talk about useful things because there's well, there's two things in drug dis- in drug discovery and drug delivery that you talk about in this. And many readers, I guess, will be aware that there's a bit of a crisis in pharma. Uh, it's costing more and more to find new useful drugs. And the way that a lot of drugs are found is just by rapid screening of lots and lots of compounds to see which almost by chance works on the target. How do you think that nano drug discovery could change that? How do you want to apply this science to that? This is an interesting interface. So as soon as nano was discovered, many people thought, okay, maybe we can use this for drug discovery for exactly the reasons you just said. Drug discovery is very difficult. Drug delivery is very difficult. So one of the main reasons why you get so sick with chemotherapy is because in order for the drugs to reach the tumor in quantities that are enough to kill the tumor, at least part of the tumor, uh, you need to put such enormous concentrations of drugs. So the idea is that can we concentrate the drugs just to the tumors? This is what we call drug delivery. The problem has been, in my opinion, that the beginning of nanomedicine basically adopted this trial and error strategy of pharmacology that you just described. So many people were looking for the magic bullets, the magic particles that would be able to do what normal drugs cannot do by concentrating the drugs in a little structure rather than just raising the concentration. Again, the, the, this paradigm of pharmas that you find a protein, you kill the protein with a drug that you, you find almost by chance is not working. And nanomedicine has been, it has initially joined this 
and of course has not worked either. So there's very few FDA approved drug delivery systems based on nanotechnology, a few liposomes and a few things. So the only thing I think that is helping now is that because nanotechnology brought with it a lot of other scientists, not just uh, chemists or pharmacologists or biochemists, um, is allowing to rethink the whole strategy for for drug discovery. But we're still not quite there yet. So as I said before, some DNA nanotechnologies are trying to find ways to synthesize molecules, which are also very difficult to synthesize. So basically, the molecules that are tested right now in this trial and error method are basically the molecules that we can build not all the molecules that can exist, are the molecules that we can build in in, in, in economic sense uh, that are possible to build. So right now, now technology is trying to improve the synthesis of drugs, improve the delivery of drugs. But one of the most interesting things, for example, that has happened is that in the US, David Baker has been able to crack a holy grail of the whole field of structural biology for a long time, that he's able to predict proteins and is also able to build proteins in the computer. So they design proteins in the computer, then they put the DNA into a bacterium or yeast that is able to produce this protein. So we are starting to be able to use biology as a factory for proteins of the future that can be used as drugs. This is the beginning. There are already some vaccines that have been done through this method, but it's early days. And so is the idea that, so rather than saying we've got this whole hundreds of thousands of compounds, let's try them all and see which works, is it to say we know what the thing we want to attack looks like, so let's design something at the atomic scale that actually gets it? This is what many people are trying to do these days with computer programs. It still is not being very effective. The reason being because they study the proteins in isolation with the whole cell, with the whole body. The proteins are difficult, still difficult to reach. Perhaps what we are learning in biology and in anything else we do is that for the most of the 20th century, we were using a technology of sort of we thought we could dominate nature. We could just come and design something that would bang where we want. We could create... Uh, we could create uh, fertilizers that will produce our agriculture the way we want. And actually what we find is that we always end up in a terrible mess because we don't take into account the complexity of life on Earth. So one of the most beautiful examples of this is that most of the FDA trials that are happening right now for cancer, for so example. So that's Food and Drug Administration. That's right, in the US, which is like the reference for all the scientists to see if a technology is good enough for medicine or not. If, you, if you're allowed to do a clinical trial, if you're allowed to be approved by the FDA, is, is the way we, we measure. So most of these, the current treatments are not based on pharmaceuticals, are based on immunotherapy. So basically, immunotherapy is about using the immune cells of your body to attack the disease. So we are not going to attack disease with our simplistic mindset of, I create a drug, I silence a protein, because it doesn't work. As I said at the beginning, the cell is a wonderful computer that senses everything and gets rid of your drugs. The bacteria get rid of of your drugs, the tumors get rid of your drugs, but they can't get rid of the immune system because the immune system is a cell that is thinking in the same way. So what we are maybe learning is to harness biology, complex biology, to use in medicine. So what you're doing in immunotherapy is to give signals to the, to the immune system, to tell the immune system to identify, for example, a cancer cell. So, and in this sense, nanotechnology can be very useful because we can use these nanomaterials and these new strategies to communicate with the cell's signals. So we sort of... I talk in the book about implantable vaccines, that they are materials which have a nanostructure, 
which have inside of them information for the immune system to tell the immune system to identify the cancer cells. You implant it and you can give continuously give information to the immune system and it, it, it works. It's working with many, with many cancers. Yeah. One of the lovely examples you talk about in that context is, which also brings in drug delivery, is this idea of light-activated uh, compounds. Yeah. T- 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 talk about that. Yeah, so people, I mean, there's something, well, there are many ways in which you can do light activation these days. You can, for example, as I, in DNA origami constructs, people make them so they are, activate themselves with light, so they open and close the lid. But there's something called optogenetics these days, which is revolutionizing biology. It's like you can put, for example, cells, express a protein that in the cells that sends light, and then you can access some of the mechanisms of the cell to respond to the outside world using light. So we're starting to learn how to interact with that computer power of, of the cell through electricity, through mechanics, through light. And I think, in, I'm not sure which example you talked to, I think there's a beautiful example of a robotic stingray that is steered. Well, it's a steer that by was light. The one I was thinking about was using infrared to, uh, so the cells, you wait until your package, your nano package is where yeah. you want it. And, and then, then you, you throw an, an infrared light to open the nano packages. And you can also do this with magnetic fields. So people are thinking of, I could make magnetic particles, steer them with a magnetic field, take them where I want, and then heat them up just using a, an oscillating magnetic field to, to burst your tumor. Yeah, there's, people are thinking of all sorts of combinations of physics and chemistry to kill cells. And they are good in the lab. They're good with mice. Uh, still not there for humans, I'm afraid, no. Um, you, you tantalized us with the robotic stingray. Oh, and yes. I, I, I would like to talk about that, but I, we're getting towards the end and I don't want to let you go without talking about rabbit penises. Yes, no, this is great, yeah. So one of the things I love in in the current intersections between physics, engineering, and biology is tissue engineering. So, and there's a big effort to understand how the body builds tissues. Of course, there's an interest for transplanting organs, such as penises or vaginas, actually. People are trying to understand how organs are built to see if we can reproduce them in the lab. Basically, tissues are made of cells and also a nanoscale scaffold on which the cells sit on, which is usually made of collagen, hyaluronic acid, all these things that they get advertised in the cosmetic industry. Because the reason for that is because they, they keep our our tissues together. That's why when, when you get old, you have less collagen and you start sagging. So we, many of us are trying to build these scaffolds to create organs in the lab. Some of the re- reasons we do this, which I also talk is for, for testing drugs, etc. But there's a guy in the US, which is called Atala, and he has become very good at using real the scaffold. So instead of making them artificially, you either get the, an organ for someone or, an, or a rabbit that is dead and remove the cells from that. You can also do with tracheas, which some children have done. Remove, remove the cells from that and then reimplant cells on it. And for reasons I don't know, and I would love to ask, he's very specialized in, in creating or, or, or trying to engineer uh, sexual organs. That's what I told in the book, which because I find it funny. So and he did this wonderful experiment where he gets rabbits and makes an artificial penis out of an, I suppose, another dead rabbit gets a penis and reimplanted into the rabbit. And it works. The rabbit has a penis that works. And then he demonstrates that many of the rabbits where he puts an artificial, which is not artificial anymore, because your body eventually takes control of the artificial penis and makes it its own. They go on to have babies. The thing is, the penises of rabbits are very small. 
So it will be much difficult to make human penises. I think he's trying. He's trying uh, to create human penises, yeah. What about the future of the nano world? Where do you see this all going? Yeah, I think what, what is happening right now is that the, there's a blurring of, of the boundaries between disciplines. So there's many people like me who can move from biology to material science to physics. So for us, basically, I learn biology so I can construct new materials and then I use the new materials to repair biology or to create new biology. This is a bit the stingray story I was telling you before. Oh, go on, tell us about the stingray. Yeah, so this is the transmaterial world I talk about in the book. So the the boundaries, so the the stingray is is, is this little plastic device which is made of polymers of plastic and and cells of, of a heart. And it can move around following light by using the power of, of real cells on a plastic structure. So it's got rat heart cells. That's that right. <laughs> and moving its wings. It moves like a wings. Together you're applying the principles of engineering with physics, with modern genetic uh, techniques and, heart and tissue engineering, like building new tissues. So I think from all the things we are learning is that we're going to learn to work better with nature in a way. One of the things I have learned, not only working with biologists, but these days I'm, I'm starting to work with architects, is that it's very difficult to reproduce all this wonderful, well, it's, I think it's basically impossible for humans to, to access the capacity of biology to construct the structures and react to the environment. But what we are doing is learning how they work and create sort of hybrid things that use both for the principles of biology and, and the things we already know. So we are going to merge our technology with biology more and more. So in doing that, we will become very good at constructing things at the nanoscale, but they might not be fabricated top down. We might be using cells to fabricate them for us, or we might be finding new ways of using wood or of using uh, what exists in the real world to make uh, our technology is more sustainable, which is becoming, I think, the main target of science. How do we survive? How we we prevent our extinction? Well, on on the topic of extinction and dystopias, (laughs) you may have been mercifully still in Spain when this happened, but Prince Charles made one of his periodic interventions, idiosyncratic interventions in British politics, and talked about grey goo, the idea of nanomachines that become self-replicating and uh, take over the world and destroy us all. Is this a concern? I don't think it is. And actually, learning biology, you know how it is not a concern. Biology emerged on Earth. So the Earth is about 4.5 billion years old. And the first record of bacteria happened 4 billion years ago. So pretty early on, biology started happening. It took billions of years to big organisms like ours to to emerge on Earth. And the reason was that it took billions of years for, of, and of mass extinctions of microbes to create an environment on Earth that was sustainable for life. Because all these nanomachines we talk about, because they're so small, depend on a very, very precise control of everything around them. They have to have the right soil concentration, the right pH, the right temperature. If you go off those ranges, we don't work anymore. That's why the early Earth has all mass extinction after mass extinction. And that's why it's so concerning that we are changing now the environment the way we're doing, because we, we, we destroy the conditions that are there for life as we know it, life uh, as, you know, very complex. So our nanomachines, as soon as they get out of the cell, as soon as you get out of the water, they will not work. So 
I don't think they will have billions of years of time to evolve. By that time, we won't be here anymore. So I don't think that's the main concern of nanotechnology. It's more the contamin. if we start producing contaminants for the environment or if we start doing really crazy things uh, with the nanoparticles, but I don't think they're going to run away from the lab. Great. Thank you very much indeed. And your book is called Nano Comes to Life and it's out uh, from Princeton Press. And is it out now? Yeah, it's out now. It's just out. Great. Thank you very much. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm Bea Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades – And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.